We're still talking about Saturday's riot in Cleveland. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon, who have been working very hard of late to get all the stories done that we have to get done. <laughs> and I'm feeling guilty as the taskmaster that keeps them going around the clock. Good, good. <laughs> so let's, let's get right back to the slog. Did Saturday's rioters get inside the Justice Center? Did police ever give an order to disperse before using tear gas and wooden bullets on the demonstrators? We talked a lot about what happened Saturday, but details keep coming out. Laura Johnston, what are some of the latest? They did get inside, which we did not know on Saturday, even though we had reporters and photographers there. So they wanted to free the inmates in the jail, actually. Um, Police Chief Calvin Williams and Mayor Frank Jackson spoke to the editorial board of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer yesterday, and they said... They never had expected to have to guard the Justice Center that's owned by the county. But as Sheriff David Schilling said earlier this week, sheriff's deputies were not prepared. And all of a sudden, the city police were trying to secure the building. While police did say they gave orders to disperse, no witnesses heard them. And no organizers or legal observers or our reporters or photographer ever remember hearing them say that at all. No, no witnesses that we've heard from. The police right. told us they have video of it, but they didn't provide it. You know, the, the idea of preparation continues to dog this thing. I mean, one of the things that we wanted to hear from the mayor and the police chief is what was your plan? Because, you know, the violence breaks out. People are very clearly doing bad things and the police are not coming out to arrest them. And, and Calvin Williams said, look, our priority was the safety of our forces. We were outnumbered greatly. And then, like you said, they had to come to the defense of the Justice Center because the sheriff wasn't prepared. But I don't know. I, I think all of us remember the RNC where there was training and lots of deployment to stop the violence. Now, with that, you had the SWAT teams from departments, not just from the region, but from around the country and a lot of federal training. But Cleveland police did benefit from that training. I just would have thought that the police would have had a couple hundred guys in tactical gear down in a basement out of sight somewhere so as not to provoke anything ready to go if things busted out because they had busted out elsewhere in the country. And that wasn't the case. And it's uh, what Calvin Williams said is they got the police cars out of downtown because those are targets in protest for damage. And indeed, the ones that were there were. I think we had five get burned. But the logistics then of getting tactical units to the hot spots consumed some time. And so he described, Laura, an hour where as they were moving people into position, the bulk of the damage on Euclid and Ninth happened. Right. I think, you know, we were there and we didn't know that that was going on at the time. And it's quite possible, you know, things they're focused on the Justice Center. They don't know what's going on in every other part of the city. And it was it was crazy there for a little while. And then we've talked about this before, but you know, once they called in the National Guard and got all of the tactical teams there, they did regain order and got everyone out of downtown. But yeah, it got really hairy there for a little bit. Well, Frank Jackson made a point that it's worth repeating. We asked about the difference between the protests of, of 2014, 2015, 2016 with Tamir Rice, the, the Brelo case with the 137 shots in East Cleveland, and then the RNC. When mobs of people demonstrated and we did not have damage and rioting, and he said in all of those cases, 
people came downtown to be heard, to make a message, to to stand up against police attacking people or or uh, make political statements, but that there was a faction that they're they're very certain came to this solely to launch the damage, to 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 incite others to smash windows and loot and things like that. And it fits with descriptions we've heard from others that there were groups that did not come from the protest. They came from down south on the, down the hill on West Third Street, um, equipped with boulders and Molotov cocktails and things to get things going. We ask, well, if that's the case, if you had out-of-towners, why is almost nobody arrested from out-of-town or the bulk of the people from Cleveland? And they're, they basically said, you know, the people that came in to mix it up were good planners, had mm-hmm. a plan to get out. And the people who get arrested largely are the mopes that are right. opportunists. They, they, that, they, they took advantage of it, but they weren't the instigators of the violence. So now they're trying to figure out who the instigators were and good luck with that. Anyway, it was, uh, it was, int- I, I had no idea they had gotten into the justice center. They got in with some sticks and things. Uh, the sheriff's office called for backup and the police secured it. They also talked and we didn't see this, but they said police were pelted, not just with bottles and water, but bottles filled with urine and bricks and stones that they took a lot of it. There were, there were no serious injuries. But, we, you know, for safety reasons, we had our people back so that we weren't right up on that because we didn't want our folks to get hurt. We have some pretty serious protocols about that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Sherrod Brown want the U.S. Senate to glare racism a public health emergency? We've seen this pop up in Cleveland, in Akron, in Columbus, uh, and now in Washington. Jane Cahoon, what is this about? Well, as you said, it's this would be something similar to the uh, resolutions that that are being proposed, you know, by the Black Caucus in the Ohio legislature and 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 in cities. It, it's he feels the need, as others do, to to formally acknowledge the these health disparities that have existed in this country for more than four hundred years, and and the barriers that African Americans and other minorities face in in getting health care. Um, he said that the that black and brown communities have been hit hardest by the coronavirus, which we know is true, and they're more likely to get sick and they have less access to health care. Anyway, so he, he would like his Senate colleagues to join him in such a resolution. I don't think it's been formally drafted, but Representative Joyce Beatty, a congressman from the Columbus area, was on a phone call with him and said, She'd like to see something like that incorporated into real legislation with actual funding to to make a difference on on this persistent problem. I guess guess that's the question that comes out of the city council. Cleveland City Council, actually, I I think they adopted it yesterday and it will go to the mayor for a signature, I guess. But 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 is this symbolic or is there is there real meaning? I mean, we've been talking about the inherent racism that appears to be the cause of the high rates of infant mortality among African-Americans, because every other factor, when you adjust for it, it's it's still up there. And and what we've heard from people is, as African-Americans go to the doctor, there's they're treated differently. There's subtle differences that reduce their opportunity for good health care. But what does passing resolutions actually do to change that? That's a right. This is, this is Laura Johnson. 
the CDC says that if you pass these, you have to do something about them. So they're not very specific, but this isn't just a resolution where they say, we believe this. They're supposed to then the next make a next step where they start addressing all of the issues behind the disparity. So what's uh, the next step? I mean, what is the concrete step that comes from this, you know, beyond a kumbaya moment? I, mean, the, the, I get, I mean, to just declare it a problem doesn't solve the problem. What are they, what is Sherrod Brown proposed to do to solve the problem? Well, I, I don't think he has a specific resolution yet, but I, I was looking at the, um, the resolution from that's been introduced in the Ohio legislature and it is non-binding, which means basically they don't, they don't have to follow it if it gets adopted. However, it has some meat to it. I mean, in addition to creating a, a glossary of terms and, and definitions on, on racism and health equity, it has some things like reviewing state law, laws through a racial equity lens and, you know, looking at how, how our current laws affect minority communities and, you know, legislators like Sandra Williams think that the state agencies could review the laws as part of their regular review of laws and regulations that that that's required. And it also contains a, a commitment that state government conduct all human resources, vendor selection and grant management activities with a racial equity lens. So, I mean, it, it does have meat to it. It's just will they adapt it, number one? And then, you know, since it's non-binding, you know, but it's a, it's a first step maybe toward actually, you know, making this law. And we have all of these local, state and federal actually all acting at once toward the same goal, which when does that happen? You know, though, I guess I, I mean, I've seen when I covered City Hall, we basically didn't write about most resolutions because they didn't mean anything. I mean, they're just their paper and it was feel good. I actually I think I have more confidence that if we're going to change public health, that it's going to come from the hospital systems like the ones in Cleveland. I mean, Akron Boutros and Metro Health is I mean, that's a chief focus of what he does. But you're seeing signs from the Cleveland Clinic and UH that they get this is a big deal and they have new leadership. And I, I just, I think having non-binding resolutions from government, okay, fine. I, I, you know, in a state where there's really been no evidence that they pay attention to these things, I, I don't have the confidence in it. But if, if our, the leadership in Cleveland these days seems to be coming from the hospital systems, then we might have a better chance of getting it there. We'll have to see. I just, it's, it's interesting. Everybody's rushing to do this. What will the meaning, will it be meaningful? You're listening this week in the CLE. Who is Ohio State University's new president? It's only the second women serve as a president, right, Laura Johnston? Yes. Her name is Christina Johnson. She was chancellor of New York's SUNY system, and she is the school's second woman president. We think we're still checking that she's the first openly gay president of Ohio State. She has held positions at Duke University, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Colorado at Boulder. Also served as the Undersecretary of Energy from 2009 to 2010 during Barack Obama's administration. She 
created an energy plan to reduce carbon emissions by 83% by 2050. So she kind of sounds like a genius. Apparently, she holds at least 129 U.S. and international patents. She also has some cred with uh, Ohio State's football fans. Her grandfather, who was a member of OSU's class of 1896, played right guards on one of the Buckeyes' first football teams. So she looks like the total package. You know, so many university presidents spend their entire time in academics. I mean, she's a rare person that, that has been in, done the work. I mean, to have that many patents and to be that heavily into the science of it, that, that's pretty cool. And Jane Cahoon, what did Mike DeWine have to say about her? Well, he had a phone conversation with her and he said he was really impressed and he hoped to work more closely with, with Ohio State. As you know, they've worked with them on coronavirus modeling and things like that. But he he wants to forge an even closer relationship. Well, given given that we have never been able to get the modeling from Ohio State, I hope she's dedicated to transparency. She's got quite a quite a job coming up. They just announced a three hundred million dollar revenue gap. So like every college president, she's gonna be trying to figure out how to make college work in the coronavirus age. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the Republicans giving up on Charlotte, North Carolina as the site for their national convention, is Ohio in the running because we hosted the last one? Jane Coon, please say it isn't so. (laughs) It isn't so. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine was on Fox and Friends, one of President Trump's favorite shows, as we know, on Wednesday. And they asked him, you know, hey, would Ohio volunteer for this? And he basically said, no, you know, there are too many concerns about mass gatherings. And as we've talked about before, the, the mass gatherings are really like the last thing that are co- going to come back on track in Ohio. DeWine's very concerned about that. So he basically said, no. So what, I don't know. <laughs> what, what state, what leader of any state in their right mind would welcome this? I, I mean, the, the rub in, in Charlotte was, they wanted to enforce social distancing rules. And right. Donald Trump wants to have gigantic rallies like he had in 2016. I just, you know, it's there was talk a while ago about making the conventions virtual for the very reasons we're, we're discussing. I mean, will, will someplace like Georgia, which has thrown a lot of caution to the wind on the coronavirus, is that the most likely place, you think, for this to go? Or I, I think both Florida and Georgia have seem eager to, to step forward here. Because um, Florida yeah. doesn't have vulnerable populations to no, the coronavirus. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's warm there and it kills it, you know. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, at least it's not coming here. We had our fill of it. Really, with the success Cleveland had, with that convention, they should never do another one because it can never work out as well as that did. It'll just, it'll just go backwards. And you know, that exhausted everybody. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why has an attorney filed suit arguing that Cleveland's curfew since the riot on Sunday is illegal? This is an interesting one because Chris Warnowski on the podcast yesterday said, I'm surprised that no attorney has filed suit saying that this is illegal. And now one has. Laura Johnston, what's the deal? So this attorney, um, Mark Andrejic, probably just butchered his name, sorry. He is arguing an end to what he calls the imposition of martial law. Uh, As we know, 
uh, Mayor Frank Jackson ordered the curfew Saturday after the protests devolved into riots. And we're still living in them until right now, tomorrow morning, um, during the daytime, at least. And he's saying that the proclamation of the curfew was, was broad and vague. Uh, the lawsuit also names Governor Mike DeWine who called in the National Guard and the Highway Patrol to Cleveland. It also names Executive Armin Budish and Cuyahoga County Daniel Sheriff Schilling. Um, he said in the documents, I love this quote, that the curfews violate residents' rights and they are not determined by any objective criteria, but under the arbitrary and capricious whim of the mayor. Well, you know, I, I mean, Chris brought this up. What is what is the legislative or the executive authority to declare things like curfews? We've had examples in the suburbs of police declaring curfews for, you know, people under 18 can't go into to certain stores after a certain time or, you know, you can't have more than two kids in a store. I, but I, I do wonder what is what is the power under the law? for a mayor to lock down a city. I mean, you got to think something is there. I mean, when when looting and rioting is going wild in the streets, I just suppose that the mayor could say, okay, I'm locking down the city. No one can come or go. We got to get control before the whole place burns down. But the, this lawsuit raises a good question. What is the authority? How does it get applied? I, you know, we probably should do some following up here to say, is there a right to do this? And he's he's saying in this that he really hasn't used the criteria. So what are the criteria? Interesting case. And Chris Warnowski was present in, in asking yesterday, where are the lawsuits? Maybe the lawyer was listening. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did House Republicans in Columbus quickly halt their efforts to slash our voting opportunities in November? Jane Cahoon, we talked with we marveled, actually, uh, earlier this week at how the Republicans were working to once again reduce voting rights in a presidential election year. What changed so quickly? Well, they, they did actually back off and, and overhaul this bill and take out the parts that had prompted the biggest objections. And as, as we noted on this podcast before, the objections came not just from Democrats and voting rights activists, but the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, was not pleased about some of these provisions. So I, I think there was just a realization that uh, this this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fly. But the the part that they removed was they had wanted to eliminate early in person voting the weekend before the election, and they wanted to ban the Secretary of State um, mailing ballot applications to all registered voters. Now they're going to let him do that with one point three million dollars in federal money paying for it, and they also removed um, some language that would have allowed Governor Mike DeWine's administration to request an emergency election with legislative approval no later than 60 days before election day. You know, that was their emergency plan just in case of a big, another big coronavirus uh, wave. But, but they, but they replaced that part with language that would prohibit public officials, except for state lawmakers and local boards of elections, from changing anything about the time or manner of an election. They they want control over that. They're still smarting from the governor's decision to halt the, the uh, in-person primary in March. 
Well, and the Constitution does vest the legislature with the power to set the election. Did anybody, I, I'm getting back to the, the parts that were going to abridge voting rights by, by taking away days and things. Did anybody speak to keep those or did, they ju- did that just go away? They just realized we're getting blasted. And it was so sinister that they put that back in. There was no, we talked about this the other day. What was the logic for doing that? What did anybody offer any kind of actual pragmatic reason for doing so? And the answer was no. Did anybody offer it yesterday before it died or did they just let it go quickly? Well, one of the lawmakers said he didn't really interpret it as abridging those early voting hours. He just thought they were cleaning up some statutory language. So there was a difference in interpretation Certainly, the Democrats and the voting rights activists believe they were eliminating those days. So there was kind of a weird, you know, argument over that. That they had a really long hearing on this and heard from, heard a lot of testimony um, yesterday before voting along party lines to advance it to the full house. Uh, the the Democrats and the voting rights activists are still not happy with this bill because they they want things like postage paid envelopes with ballots and, and yeah, they voted down and, they voted yeah. that down that yeah they, the democrats tried a bunch of amendments that all got shot down they they want uh as frank larose wants uh, to allow voters to apply online for for a ballot instead of having to submit a paper form which just seems pretty antiquated and um anyway so they LaRose seemed, you know, to be satisfied by the changes in this bill. But as I said, the others still were not. This is Laura Johnston. I think a lot of people this spring had their eyes open about how voting by mail worked. And they're like, wait, I have to put a stamp on it? This seems really unfair. And I think there's a whole lot of people that for the first time were kind of looped into how it works. So maybe they're getting some pressure. I don't know. I just marvel that how many efforts the Republicans in Columbus have made to cut back voting rights. It's just, we just, it's a story that never goes away. There's never a real reason for it. I mean, it's, it's to Ohio shame that we keep, keep doing this. We should be making voting as easy as possible for everybody. And yet there's these, these silly efforts to, with no explanation, no one ever said why we shouldn't vote on the weekend before in person. Nobody ever said why we wouldn't mail every voter a ballot. They just try and take it away to reduce the turnout. And it's just so sinister. Shame on them for trying and kudos for pulling it back. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How depressed are people in America because of the coronavirus? It's about a new poll that shows not surprisingly, we're we're all a little more depressed, probably because we're all stuck at home. We're not socializing. And I don't know. I think we all feel like we're working a lot harder, even though we have extra time that we're not commuting. Laura Johnston, what's the poll show? It's And it's not just depression. It's also anxiety. So um, about a third of us are depressed or anxious, according to this U.S. Census survey. And that was before the George Floyd killing and the um, protests across the country. So this is a really kind of fascinating thing the U.S. Census is doing. They started April 23rd. They're measuring the mental health of Americans on a 20-minute online survey for 90 days. So they the numbers had actually been going down a little bit. We're a little less depressed and a little less anxious than we were in April, which makes sense. Things are opening up. The sun is shining more. The weather is nicer. But 
it's going to be really interesting to see the results after this week. Um, but even in the last three months, mental health professionals have seen more alcohol and substance abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse. Uh, they predict the country might see more suicides and um, overdose deaths in the future because of this. Are you feeling more anxiety or are you feeling more <laughs> depression? <laughs> I am not. I am. I'm not feeling symptoms of depression. I am feeling anxious. Um, I, I sent this out on our text message platform yesterday and I got some people back saying, well, yeah, I, I am one of these people. And I think just one of the responses was that she felt so uncertain about the future and if you're a little type A like me, it is hard not to have a plan. I like to know what's coming. And for so long, we've just been operating in this, we don't know what comes next kind of world. And I think that's really unsettling for people. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest news on summer activities that are reopening after coronavirus shutdowns? We were expecting some news today. There's people talking about their their businesses and when they're going to open. Jane, let's start with what's going on with Governor Mike DeWine. He's made a late cancellation of his briefing, even though he announced Tuesday he was going to have some things to say today. Right. He decided to cancel the briefing out of respect for the memorial service that's happening today for George Floyd. And but instead, he promises to make announcements via press releases, which Hopefully we'll get by this afternoon. Anyway, what he, what he had promised at his briefing the other day was an announcement on zoos, museums, and other such attractions, maybe amusement parks. We're not, we're not quite sure. But he did say he, it's going to be good news that he's gotten the reports from these groups and that they look good, you know, the, the measures that they, they're going to take to protect people. So we'll see. There was one hedge, though, in what he said. It was like, it's good news for almost, like, almost Most everything. Most people will be happy. Yeah. yeah. What he said. This is Laura Johnston. Um, yeah, so that gives you a little glimmer, like, maybe we're not letting Cedar Point open up yet. Because, you know, you think that's got to be one of the very last things with all of the massive crowds, even though they do have a plan. Uh, We did get some good news overnight, though. Um, The Cleveland Metro Parks are staffing their beaches starting this weekend for lifeguards, and the concessions are opening, as well as their East 55th on the Lake patio um, dining at at East 55th Marina. So a little bit of summer fun is, is opening back up. Okay, so so some good news. We expect some more good news. So it, what what we think is we'll hear for zoos and museums, which you, you know you got to think it's the museums because we've got a couple in Cleveland that have already announced their opening, and what next week, the week after, the Rock Hall and the Cleveland Art Museum. Um, but you think the hedge was about the big amusement parks? That's my Maybe. guess. Yeah, <laughs> and you know we do have a couple of these smaller amusement places like swings and things. And, and Susan Glasser wrote that um, they, they're really, they really think it's unfair to be lumped in with this working group with Cedar Point and Kings Island because, you know, they think they could have opened weeks ago. They're much smaller and they, they can handle it. And there's a general uh, impatience with DeWine in the tourism industry, you know, where they, they've had these plans submitted to to him and they they really think that the decision should have already been made. What's the logic on saying we're smaller 
so we can open. It's still something where you're you're kind of packing people in for amusement rides, and you're smaller, so you might have a smaller crowd. But but I how, wouldn't I, it just so be? I actually- uh, I talked to the owner of Swings and Things uh, when the mini golf opened, actually, because they do have mini golf. And I was I was thinking, oh, you must be excited. And he was actually saying he's really frustrated um, because they are smaller. They never have those kind of massive lineups that they do at Cedar Point where you're waiting an hour and a half to ride the Magnum. Right. We're talking about go karts or. um you know, small amusement rides that they could disinfect in between people riding. You don't have the same kind of lineup or the mass. It's not really much of a mass gathering and it is all outside. So if a mini golf can open, then what's the big difference between mini golf and go-karts, I guess. But it, but is it possible, you know, like, like we discovered a month or so ago that if you're riding a bike or you're running and you're behind somebody that's riding a bike or running, you need a lot more than six feet of social distance because as they're exhaling, you're coming into it. I mean, if I'm on a go-kart behind you and you have coronavirus and don't know it and are exhaling, you know, I would think that there'd be some more danger that, that that's different than other kinds of attractions that you need to think about. I mean, it's like if you're on a roller coaster, and the person in the front seat of the roller coaster has coronavirus and is breathing heavily because they're so thrilled and you're in the seat behind them, doesn't that kind of expose you to the coronavirus in a way that wouldn't happen elsewhere? But these, um, I think the argument is these smaller places don't have those kind of thrill rides. You know, I, I, I see the point that these are very different uh, atmospheres and number of people and they should not be lumped in together. Now, does it mean it's safe to open? I'm not a scientist, but... The owner of Swings and Things said he spent $10,000 on glass partitions and things to make it safer. So he says they they can safely open. And I mean, we're letting weddings with 300 people happen. Right. I guess it just depends on the power (laughs) of your lobbyist because that one is never going to make sense. Okay. You're listening this week in the CLE. All right. Good episode. We miss Chris today. He's having technical difficulties. Hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening for this week in the CLE. 